Welcome, this is Coppercast, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon, and our guest today is Philip Gradwell, the Chief Economist at Chainalysis. After reading politics and economics at Oxford University, Philip went on to join the Vivid Economics Consultancy, where he specialized in the economics of climate change. There, he led a team of consultants working globally on energy systems analysis. It was also at Vivid where Philip met Jonathan Levin, the founder of Chainalysis, who later invited Philip to join the team. However, his first exposure to crypto was through a Wired article about the Silk Road. He was fascinated to learn of a marketplace outside the system and was assigned to him that Bitcoin was changing the game. At Chainalysis, Philip leads data-driven research on blockchain economics and is a frequent media commentator on crypto compliance and financial crime. He also holds a master's degree in economics from UCL. Welcome, Philip. Thanks for having me here. So I guess our first question, let's start you know, with Billy Basics. What is, what is Chainalysis? What are you guys doing? So Chainalysis is the blockchain analysis company. Uh, and at the heart of it, we're building a data set that maps from cryptocurrency addresses to real-world entities. And we use that data set at the moment to supply you know, software to, like, say, law enforcement who are doing investigations of cryptocurrency crimes, to cryptocurrency businesses if they need to, say, do anti-money laundering checks, uh, but then also to financial institutions. And that's really where I come in. You know, When you're looking at the data on the blockchain and you're trying to understand where the markets are going, it's a bit like, say, looking at all of the oil wells that are out there and how much they're producing uh, or all the cars that are going inside, you know, in and out of factories. Uh, and my role is to analyze that data and serve it up for financial institutions so we can understand the market. And how, how easy or hard is it to analyze that data? Like, how difficult is it, for instance, with Bitcoin to link a wallet address with an identity, a human identity or corporate, whatever? Yeah, so there's really two stages of that. So one is to say, look, this set of addresses they're all controlled by you know, an entity. We don't know the name of the, or identity of that entity, but we can at least say all of these addresses you know, should group together. That's like hard, but it's still sort of possible to do. It's sort of a big data science challenge. That next step of saying, well, this set of addresses you know, belongs to you know, a named entity. You can only really do that with the businesses. So that's your cryptocurrency exchanges, for example. And like a easy reason why you can do that is you can go to that exchange's website, you can like log in, generate a deposit address, send some Bitcoin to it. But if it's an individual, it's actually really hard. There's nothing on the blockchain that ties this set of addresses, you know, to my personal wallet. And how, how important is it that you can do that or that you can't do that right now? Like how important is it that at some point you might be able to do that or that we'll never be able to do that? Yeah, so like, I think it's essential that there's actually a, level of privacy um if you're able to say hey this is you know philip's bitcoin be a bit creepy um you know can't do that with my what i currently have in my bank account but i think a level of traceability is important um and it's important that there's kind of a due process around it and what i mean by that is you know if you're trying to sell bitcoin on an exchange you know, they need to do some due diligence about where it came from. Or if you're law enforcement and you know that Bitcoin came from a darknet market or from, you know, something kind of worse, they can then trace that flow of funds to an exchange. And there they might be able to ask, okay, what is the uh, you know, personally identifiable information or the, you know, the KYC, you know, your customer documents, and then trace that back. But that all exists within a legal process. So it's not the data that's on the blockchain. That's kind of data that we have in the rest of society. And we've got a set of rules and guardrails around that. What about other coins? Like, so does Bitcoin strike a nice balance there, whereas other coins, Monero, Verge, like Zcash, there, which are you know privacy coins, they 
lean more towards the no KYC, no AML. This is purely private stuff. Like how, how do you balance, you know, measuring those coins? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I would say something like Zcash actually strikes a nice balance because there you can have shielded transactions uh, and you know, obviously there are unshielded transactions. So you get a choice about when you, know, you reveal uh, some more information about the transactions that are being made. Something like Monero, you know, everything's shielded. And what, what are they shielding exactly? Uh, I mean, almost all information. Right. Um, so, yeah. Amount and Amount, where to, where Counterparties, from. exactly. Okay. When you guys are doing... Uh, tracing and tracking and what are you looking at on a transaction how do you how do you like screen a transaction and say oh this just flagged up in our system it's a big transaction like what are the things that pop yeah so really actually we're providing data you know to exchanges and they then have or you know other like entities like an otc desk for example uh and they have their own risk policy so actually, we're providing the data, and then they set the rules. You know, and they might say, "Okay, it's over this limit," and that might be, you know, derived from regulation that says, "Hey, you actually have to report every transaction that's over a thousand dollars because that's just what's required under the Bank Secrecy Act in the U.S." Um, but the extra set of information that we can provide is source of funds. So, for example, we would identify a set of addresses that, say, is controlled by a darknet market, and we can see the Bitcoin that was sent from them into an exchange, even if it's gone through, say, multiple hops, you know, the people have sent it from one wallet to another. And so we're really telling, you know, the crypto business, look, this Bitcoin, it originated from, you know, this type of actor that's illicit under like many versions of uh, whichever jurisdiction you're in. So therefore you should go ask some questions or freeze those funds. Is there some, is it like a standard uh, for, I guess, distance in terms of transactions from some illicit activity whereby you might deem the coin or tokens to be no longer associated with it. And I just, you know, when I think about cash and how many banknotes have been used for purchasing things or, you know, drugs or whatever. Uh, but as long as you weren't the purchaser of those drugs, then the cash is fine. It's clean. So with digital assets, because it's all linked, you know, at what point do you stop saying, okay, this Bitcoin's illicit because it's been a hundred transactions. Is there like a standard for that? I don't think there's like a really like clear standard, but I think the way it works in practice is, you know, what you're really trying to understand is when the assets have changed hands. That can be difficult when you're looking at transfers just between, you know, these pseudo-anonymous addresses because, you know, was there actually a change of hands or is it someone just creating a wallet to make it look like there was a change of hands? But there are points in the sort of network where you can be certain there's been a change of hands. For example, when you know Bitcoin has been accepted by an exchange and then it's withdrawn from it, particularly if that exchange has good KYC and AML. And so really there's the Bitcoin that's kind of flowing through you know, these self-hosted wallets. There, if you do find that you've got exposure to illicit activity, uh, you kind of got to go ask some questions about like all those hops in the chain. And really there shouldn't be any limit. Because the people who have, who are trying to hide a lot of stuff, they might go to some extreme lengths uh, to create some distance. Um, so you never want just the amount of distance to be your metric. Okay, um, um, so you mentioned law enforcement earlier as you know people who, who are using uh, chain analysis and on-chain analytics. Is it are they using it in like a constant monitoring process, or is it sort of we became aware of a transaction or some illegal activity and we think it's linked to this? Can you go explore it? Like to what extent do they? 
you know, watch this stuff. So, I mean, really they are reactive, if you like. Mm-hmm. So, because they are almost not waiting, but like a crime happens, there's a blockchain address that's linked to that. They then go and investigate that. Um, and that's really like their mode of operation. Uh, or it might be, you know, it's important to realize that a lot of these cryptocurrency crimes aren't just people buying and selling things on a darknet market. It might be like an exchange is hacked or someone is defrauded. Uh, so there, someone you know, makes this complaint and then they go and follow the money to see if they can recover it. So yeah, law enforcement tends to be reactive. You guys, like as, as an organization, Chainalysis, I guess, became known because it was tasked with investigating Mt. Gox. Mm-hmm. Um, like how did that, ha- like how, how was Chainalysis selected for that and what did you find? Like what was the outcomes of that? Yeah, so actually the... You know, CEO and co-founder of Chainalysis, Michael Groninger, he was the chief operating officer at Kraken. And when Mt. Gox was hacked, I mean, the crypto industry, I think, just kind of froze. Everyone was like, this is bad. Like, what happens now? And uh, basically, he realized, well, we can see what the Bitcoin is. Like, we can actually trace it on the blockchain as it's leaving the Mt. Gox you know, addresses. Is that going to help us solve this? Uh, and from that, he realized, oh, you you can. Like, this is technologically possible. Uh, and he'd also been spending a lot of time thinking about or trying to help Kraken get bank accounts, which is very hard because a lot of people are saying, well, we don't know where this Bitcoin is from. So he sort of brought those two things together, realizing, okay, we can trace the Bitcoin, but if we can do that, then maybe this helps crypto grow because it gets this kind of mainstream acceptance. Uh, and so that was kind of the, the germ of the idea. I guess like some of the like traditional naysayers of crypto are like, you know, it's used in dark markets and for, for illicit things. And one of the counter arguments is always like, it's a terrible, terrible currency for that because you can trace it. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, hacks still happen you know, because we can follow everything. Like why, you know, why do you criminals still see it as an opportunity if, if we can follow the money? Yeah. I mean, the number of hacks has actually been reducing. Um, and actually the sort of, crime that's been growing the most well and this year it was ransomware uh, and in 2019 it was actually scams so uh, people are actually kind of hacking a bit less and actually they're just now just defrauding people unfortunately um but you know it's weird to think that that's a positive movement in the space well i mean hey if you go back to like 2019 for example um you know north korean associated hackers were hacking south korean exchanges to get crypto to sell to fund their programs. I mean, like, that's pretty serious. So maybe that is better that has declined now. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I think just a key thing that to really say is, like, that um, view of the industry really is outdated. Yeah. And what's amazing about the blockchain is because you've got the complete record of transactions, you can actually look at it all and you can say, well, like, how many of them are associated with legal activity? How many are associated with illicit activity? And, you know, Chainalysis, we spend a lot of time looking for the illicit activity as to our customers. And we find that, you know, last year around 1% of the total value sent and received was associated with illicit activity. So it's actually pretty small. Well, 1% might seem large compared to the fiat economy, it's actually not. And really, I think the key reason for that is because there's just much better things to do with cryptocurrency, like invest it or trade it. And you have more investors coming yeah. into the space, more traders coming into the space. Yeah, yeah. Um, just sticking with like the hacking stuff for a moment, um, it, is the next opportunity in the DeFi space, and how does how does chain analysis, um, you know, track that space? What, what are you doing in DeFi? Yeah, I mean, I think DeFi is 
a lot of fun. Like it evolves so fast and you're never quite sure what's going on. So I think honestly, a lot of the work is that we're putting into it is going like, how can we create a bit of a framework around the data that's been generated here so that you can almost have a scalable process? Uh, you know, when you've got a DeFi protocol that kind of pops up, it's like a little mushroom and you're like, okay, we've got to go get all the data for that. But then it kind of falls over like two weeks later, like, okay, that didn't, wasn't worth the time. So it's actually about going, you know, what is the structural architecture around thinking about just making a consolidated data set on DeFi? That's the kind of big task we're thinking about at the moment. That sounds like a big task. Yeah, it is a big task. <laughs> when will that be complete? Yeah, we'll see. No, yeah. I mean, hopefully soon. Okay, <laughs> cool. Um, so going back to your show and tell segment, which I guess to our mm. listeners, if you haven't seen, it's on our YouTube channel. You should definitely check it out. You looked a lot at the institutional inflows into the space. Um, we've got a little bit more kind of time in this segment. So can you just expand on that a little bit? We can bring those slides back if you want. Uh, I think the first one was just looking at the like a dramatic increase since November of yeah. you know proper institutions. So just go go back through that and like define it and, and what we're looking at in the space now. Yeah. I mean, I might even go back a little further from the start of November yeah. uh, and actually go back to mid-March. It's almost like a year a from year when we were talking now. And uh, if you remember 12th and 13th of March in financial markets and in crypto in particular, a tough couple of days. Yeah. And that really was because the world started to go, okay, COVID's a thing and that's going to have some profound economic consequences. But what's fascinating from looking at the on-chain data is that there was almost like a structural change in you know, how crypto was being bought and held. So we can look at uh, Bitcoin that's been held by investors. So these are wallets uh, that just absorb Bitcoin. They don't really send it on. Um, versus, say, trader wallets, which are wallets that you know, keep circulating uh, the Bitcoin they receive. And there was basically a you know, structural break. You know, there was a more rapid accumulation of Bitcoin by these investor wallets, almost starting you know, from mid-March uh, to now. And they basically sucked liquidity out of the wallets of all the traders. So you saw this growing amount of demand and declining liquidity. And that's really what was driving the prices higher. But that was relatively... I mean, not tame, it was still a big run-up, uh, you know, to, was sort of 20,000. Um, but things really changed in November. And that was the point that we saw, you know, these new investors coming in who were very large. They were buying at least 1,000 Bitcoin at a time. And, you know, they acquired about a million Bitcoin from, uh, you know, November into January. And that just really, it just preceded that price rally from, you know, 15K up to 30K at the end of the year. And are these these are the large corporates that are sort of in the in the media, like the MicroStrategies and Teslas and PayPal, things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say exactly who it is, um, and it's clear that there's more being acquired than you know has kind of been publicly announced. Mm. Um, but yes, like if you're buying a million Bitcoin, even at thirty thousand dollars Bitcoin, that's thirty million dollars you know ago. So you know that's. I mean, I know there's some retail investors out in crypto who've got some deep wallet uh, deep pockets, but. <laughs> I think we're sort of getting out of that realm now. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of shocking to think that. I think you defined the wallets earlier as uh, a medium investor is 100 to 1,000 Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. And if you think back when you were telling me your, your crypto origin story, and it sort of dates back to 2014, if you think 100 Bitcoin back then, you wouldn't have thought of yourself as a medium-sized investor. No. <laughs> Things have changed somewhat dramatically. Yeah. And where do you see, you know, if you follow the trend um, from the last, you know, November to March... Where does it take us? So 
you know, I think the interesting thing is actually this first quarter of the year has been a period of time where two things have happened. One, I think like there's been a new floor put into the market. You know, these new large investors, they've shown that they're willing to buy and hold, uh, you know, as I showed, at an average cost of $35,000 of Bitcoin. And some of those have been buying it higher than that. And but the fact that they're buying and holding suggests that they think Bitcoin is worth at least that much. So if the price were to fall back to that level, maybe they'll panic and leave. That has happened in the past. But maybe they'll go, actually, we want to buy more. We think this is good value. We're in here for longer term. So prior to that, the floor was 15K. So we've got a new floor put into the price. You know, it's 20K further than it was. At the same time, actually that, you know, the demand from those really large buyers, it's just ebbed and flowed since January. And when they start to sell, people start to take some profits, you know, the price drops. And then it seems that more demand comes in and then the price rises again. So I think we're just in this period of time where the market's just trying to find its level. And there may be some big external event that will drive it higher. You know, that demand really ramps up. But there's also a chance that people might actually take the profits. You guys are measuring on-chain analytics now. So it's everything that's happened after a transaction. Like, do you get a sense of how big the market outside of Bitcoin is that could come into Bitcoin. So we've had a few large corporates. You know, there's a few big hedge funds, a couple big investment banks. I think Goldman Sachs announced recently they're going to open their trading desk again for Bitcoin. So how much more of a market is there? Like how much more room is there to come into the Bitcoin space or crypto? Yeah, I mean, like I do think there's a like a large possibility. Uh, I, I think it's clear to people now that, you know, Bitcoin, maybe cryptocurrencies more broadly are like a, the sort of the digital asset and people want to move into that as we face, you know, the economic uncertainty that we're in, the expansion monetary environment that we're in, that's not going away anytime soon. So while that persists, I think this is going to be an asset where people are willing to park some cash. That could be a very large market. Unfortunately, I think that kind of depends on just how bad that economic outlook gets. Uh, so it could be very large if actually that look, looks pretty dire. Um, but I think there's the more positive case and kind of what I'm hoping for is that investors who you know, enter because they want to hold Bitcoin as a hedge see that actually there are some benefits to digital assets there. You know, for example, you could go rapid and invest it in DeFi or actually it's amazing to be able to hold what is essentially a commodity, you know, where the future price is higher than the you know, current spot price, but you don't have any storage costs. Like that's not like oil. So actually, I think a lot of, you know, or gold. So I think a lot of investors, you know, they might come for the hedge, but they might stay for the advantages that come with the digital asset, which means that as the broader economy starts to normalize, they'll stay and perhaps it will grow further. So you raised the, um, you know, the ability to, you know, hold Bitcoin, wrap it, and then lend it out in DeFi. Is that like, can chain analysis follow that? Like, how do you, how do you piece that together? Well, so you see the Bitcoin, uh, you know, flowing into like the wrap BTC contracts and then you see the wrap BTC leave on the ETH chain. Um, so essentially you stitch those two together and you can kind of see where it goes. So the, the cross chain analytics is, is not a problem at all? I wouldn't say it's not a problem at all. Um, for example, like combining wallets across different blockchains is hard. But if you're looking at the overall flow of funds, like it's, that's, oh yeah, you can do that. So it's easy to do the aggregates. It's a bit harder to do the kind of entity by entity mapping. And I mean, a DeFi still 
I mean, they call it, it was, you know, the summer of DeFi last summer, 2020. So it's still new. Mm-hmm. Um, and are you starting to see a lot of flows into RAP BTC and then off into the, the Ether space? And so no, actually, like mm. that's been a metric I've been watching since the autumn. And, and actually, like it hasn't climbed as much. And I think there's an interesting question as to why. I think it's because if you want, I guess like to take a step back, I think a lot of people in Bitcoin at the moment are essentially long. So it's like, what do you do with an asset class where basically everybody is long and the price is rising? But some people want some liquidity. They don't want to just sit on their paper gains. You know, it's nice to have that warm feeling inside that you've made lots of money, but occasionally you might want to buy some, but you want to stay long. So how do you do that? Well, you want to start borrowing against your asset. Um, you know, yes, you could go do it through DeFi, but you could also go and, you know, borrow by depositing your Bitcoin as collateral in like a centralized lender. Uh, you know, and we know that that's been very popular. So maybe people still trust those companies more than they trust DeFi. Do you guys, because you guys measure like the, the, the size of the wallet and then their transactions and their activity. So is it is it still mainly the retail small wallet size people that are doing this and, and the institutions are purely buy and hold? It's, I think the institutions are largely buy and hold. Um, and again, I think that comes down to a lot of the sort of psychology. Like imagine like you're the crypto champion in a corporate and you've just convinced your you know treasury officer or CFO to go and invest in Bitcoin. And then you're like, how about you also go and like wrap it and you can go and like get some DeFi tokens. I think they would be like, okay, we've listened to you so far. That was helpful, but no, not anymore. I, mean, I guess the, the first mandate is preservation of capital, not yeah, exactly. growing it through DeFi. Exactly. But that could change. I mean, depending on how stable it all looks to be and yeah okay and what, what other trends are you what are you seeing in the market right now other than institutions or even within institutions what what sort of got your interest at the moment uh so i think what's got me interested at the moment i think it's understanding whether we're actually going to face a bit of a shortage of bitcoin you know i think we're seeing like for example inflows into exchanges are really quite low um you know they've lower on like the seven day average and the 30 day average than they've been in the last sort of 180 days, if not year. And what also is interesting is that actually there are certain exchanges that are getting more liquidity and some that are getting less, uh, at least relative to the current demand that they have. And so I think there might be a bit of a split in the market. You know, there are some venues that can supply the liquidity uh, of this, you know, increasingly scarce asset, and there's others that won't be able to provide that liquidity. Uh, So I think that's going to be a maturing in the market. Um, there's also a lot of people buying Bitcoin through, you know, your fintech apps, you know, through like your Square, your PayPal, your Robinhood. Uh, that's driving a lot of demand. So I think you've got to keep track of like those key trends uh, as well. Yeah, I think that the, the fintech app thing is really interesting because those individual users don't hold those private keys, right? No. It's just the app or the, the company behind the app or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, do, you, do you feel like personally, not speaking for train analysis or anything, that that's a good development in the space or when people talk about decentralization, like there's decentralization at lots of different levels. Um, and user experience is key to mass adoption. And so and user experience often follows centralization. Um, so it's more that we've got like not as much centralization as we had before, but we're going to see some, if we want to see that adoption. So like, I don't think of it as a bad thing. I think it's kind of a natural thing in the system. And honestly, I think we've, I hope we sort of moved away from the world where people are like, 
I think that that purest model of crypto where it's like, come on guys, we're all going to hold it ourselves and we're going to try and keep it as like anonymous as possible just is a small world that doesn't lead to this mass adoption. And you've kind of got two choices. Do you want that kind of purest world where actually this is a small industry and the price is low? Or do you want a world where there is a bit of centralization and like there is a bit of compliance? Um, but it's a bigger world. It's more exciting. The price is higher. There's more investment going in. I guess it depends what you want to do with the Bitcoin as well, right? I mean, if you want yep. to use it to pay for things, you know, on the high street, then you might need it connected to a payment app, which yep. it makes it easier if they hold the coins and the keys for you. Mm-hmm. So I guess there'll be trade-offs. Exactly. Wh- which camp do you fall into? Uh, I mean, I think like some centralization is helpful. Um, I don't want to see it go like the whole way. Uh, but yeah, I think those trade-offs are important. Do you think you'd, um, do you guys get your salary in, in BTC or are you paid like in fiat, like normal <laughs> uh, people? No, oh yeah, we're paid in fiat. I think you can actually get it in Bitcoin well, if you want. But would you would you do that? Would you take your salary in Bitcoin? Would you pay for things like groceries with Bitcoin? Or is it just too yeah. volatile an asset you think I'm, I mean, I'm losing like, by buying groceries? Like I said, I think like people are long Bitcoin. I'm long Bitcoin. So I don't think you actually really want to like spend it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of, like I bought some socks with Bitcoin, I put them on and I'm like, wow, I paid a few hundred dollars for these socks, you know? Damn fine um, socks. Yeah. So, uh, but for example, I mean, you know, I'm based in the UK, but if I was in the US, I might be like, yeah, pay me in USDC. That'd be interesting. Um, or even actually being in the UK, if I had to pay some costs in the US, I'd be like, can I get part of my salary paid in USDC? Like, I'd be comfortable with that. Where do you guys look at the ev- uh, evolution of uh, CBDCs? I guess stable coins are one thing, but CBDCs are, are another thing entirely. So are you working with any sort of central banks on on how that chain is uh, tracked and traced, whether it's public or private, or what's the landscape look like for that? So I don't think they're really going to create like a public blockchain. Uh, it's not really in central bank DNA to do that. Uh, also, you know, that's a scale that would be very hard to achieve with current, you know, public blockchain technology. Uh, but also I think fundamentally, like it's, they're not thinking about this because they want to create an open platform for money. They want a digital asset that they can, where a central bank can have a relationship, as it were, with individual citizens rather than going through other financial intermediaries. So you know, I actually think the conversation like where crypto and CBDCs overlaps is actually pretty small. I think they kind of get conflated. Uh, more than they actually are. Just because of the technology they're, they're based on? Or? Uh, I think because of the narrative space that they occupy. Um, you know, we saw CBDCs really ramp up uh, or interest in it ramp up after Libra. Now DM was like, we're going to exist. So I think it's more crypto as a catalyst for CBDC development rather than like a related topic. But I guess I mean, everything that you do at Chainalysis would be equally relevant to a central bank that issues a CBDC, right? They, they might want to follow, but they definitely would want to follow the flows. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting uh, sort of world that you get there. Like, I think, so the, just to be a little philosophical for a moment, uh, on a public blockchain, you've got the complete record of all the transactions, but you don't have identities. You, know, you have identities in some points, but only where people like declare them publicly because they're a business and they want you to come and come in. So you've got a choice to declare. Um, in the fiat system, you don't have the complete transaction record, but you do have identities. If I want to open a bank account, I have to be like, hey, this is Philip. Um, 
And so the thing I guess I worry about is what happens when you get a system where you've got the complete transaction record and identities connected to it. Like that starts to look like an awful lot of information baked in. Um, and something that like I've thought a lot about, you know, Chainalysis is a data company, but we spend a lot of time thinking about you know, providing that data for compliance. And what we've realized is that when you have your asset you know, digitally native, you can actually do compliance in a very different way you know, than you have to do it in the fiat system. You know, there you've got to be like, okay, there's some money coming in from like cash or in a check and some from a credit card. And like, I can only go back so far. You can't do it programmatically. Whereas when you've got everything that's digitally native, you can do compliance, you know, in an algorithmic programmatic way. And maybe when you do that, it becomes less important to actually know the identity of the person. In the fiat world, you need to know the identity of the person basically as a shortcut because you can't, you know, do the sort of deep transaction analysis that you might like to do. So instead you go, okay, this is this person, they've got this background, they've got this credit rating. So that's kind of a proxy for any of the actual transaction monitoring you might want to do. So in the world of kind of digital assets more broadly, you might actually have a new paradigm of how, you know, you do compliance. And you might not need to actually track identities as closely as you do today. It's completely different from how I thought about things before. That's, that's interesting. I can't even think of what sort of the costs or benefits of, of that might be. Is it like I don't need a credit rating anymore because it's done programmatically? And it's essentially it's done on like your history of transactions. Um, I think it's really important. Like compliance in the fiat world I sort of doesn't scale. It runs into huge problems. Banks get fined for lapses all the time. And I think the, it's sort of that shift from, you know, when social conversation goes online, you essentially have a moderation problem because suddenly all this conversation is happening at just this scale that you kind of can't do this human intervention. If really we've got a future of like digital assets, we're going to see transaction you know, volumes just like go up the orders of magnitude as people do micropayments and so on. So how do you also scale, you know, the compliance process and it starts to look a lot more like a moderation problem um, and so you have to take more algorithmic approaches to it so for me it's you know the whole point of digitizing things is that the cost of doing them decreases which means people start doing it lots more when you have people just doing something in a much larger scale your approaches to making sure that's happening in a safe way also have to scale uh, so for me, it's just kind of part of that trend that we've seen elsewhere. We're just digitizing money like we've digitized so much else that goes on in the world. Fascinating. Um, one of the last things I want to touch on, because we, we spoke about this before we were recording, um, is, is a bit about your background, where you're from, uh, what you're doing at Vivid. It's very sort of like climate focused. Hmm. Uh, and obviously one of the big criticisms of crypto is that it's not very climate focused. So and I think you said you're about to embark on some work that would sort of like evaluate this in an actual you know, hard capacity. So you know, let's just talk about the climate. What, what's happening? Yeah. So uh, yeah, to give the context, so before I joined Chainalysis, I worked for a company called Vivid Economics, which is a consultancy that did the economics of climate change. And, and we did that pretty early on. Uh, we were one of the sort of early companies to provide that type of advice. And, I mean, you know, I joined it because climate change has always been a big issue. Uh, I actually think it's, so I guess, first of all, people, it's happening. <laughs> um, just to clarify uh, but like one of the things that's really fascinating about it is it's a solvable problem like and what I mean by that is you've kind of got to go and take out all of the really high carbon things like your coal power plants and your internal combustion engine cars and replace them with low carbon options and so it's actually a big program of 
like reinvestment of the capital stock? And how do you make sure that every time you make a new investment, it's going to be low carbon? So you can solve that problem um, by kind of getting the prices right. At least that's, as an economist, how you think about it. Mm-hmm. And so when that comes to, okay, we've now got this new asset that's using lots of electricity, uh, you know, is that a good use of resources? Like, there's two parts of it. One, really we don't, it, it, I find it strange that we kind of say, oh, mining Bitcoin is a bad use of energy. Like there's a, humans do a lot of stuff with energy where you might go, is that really wise? I mean, like really how much like electricity did we put into Twitter? Is that a good use of electricity? Should we just shut that off and make the world be better? Who knows? <laughs> um, but so it's kind of strange that we say, look, this use case is kind of bad. What matters is that the technology and the way that that electricity is produced is going to be low carbon and that the electricity miners, you know, cover the costs of that extra upgrade. And I think that's where we kind of think it's going to be important to get into a little bit of detail. People say, okay, this, you know, miner, they're next to hydroelectric dam, that's renewable. What you've actually got to say is, well, does that mean that they're displacing another use in that electricity market that would have used that hydro dam? Or are they actually encouraging, you know, additional investment in renewable energy? And so if you say we're mining in, say, the European Union, you would be because you're actually going to be paying more for that. There's a system of like it's called a cap and trade system that means you pay more per uh, kilowatt hour of electricity you know, when it's higher carbon. If it's out in China, that's not going to be the case. Uh, and so I think there just hasn't been a sophisticated enough kind of uh, analysis of it. But it's really important, you know, a lot of what I uh, used to work on was essentially investors going, okay, how does the carbon intensity of my investment portfolio affect its long-term performance? Because I've actually got to start you know, selling those high carbon stocks, not just because I'm getting you know, mandates from my investors that they are expressing a preference, they want it to be clean, but actually because it's not going to perform well in the long term because people are going to have to start paying for that carbon. Um, and like that really changes the industry. Like that's been the kind of mega trend in climate change uh, mitigation in the last 10 years uh, is basically the stock market saying we don't value things that are high carbon. So how many people are talking about that as a potential barrier to entry for institutions, like the, the mandates from their investors mm. in coming into the crypto space? I mean, everyone talks about regulations, you know, liquidity, things like that. Um, no one's really talking about impact of climate investment no i mean honestly i was like surprised that i was going oh my old life is kind of coming back into this now so yeah i guess i didn't expect it to come quite as soon um but it does make sense right and are there things the industry can be doing like the crypto industry can be doing to encourage um renewable energy sources for miners i mean I, i can't think of anyone who do anything to influence what miners are doing <laughs> so i mean this is this is going to be a really interesting part of it um you know miners are very decentralized and like it you just don't actually know where they are like that's kind of the whole point like yes their resources are coordinated through mining pools um but even then if you had one miner who was like i'm sort of certified climate neutral that like lowers the average um, emissions intensity of the mined Bitcoin, but you won't know if you're kind of buying that particular 
sort of green Bitcoin because it all just kind of comes from one source. Um, I think the, the one thing that is interesting, uh, and I want to, we'll be diving uh, in deeper in the future, is we kind of know the maximum possible electricity usage because you can say like, okay, this is the difficulty and then that requires this much computing power to solve and that much computing power requires this much electricity. And if we think that's based in this country, well, that country, you know, produces this many grams of CO2 for per kilowatt hour. So you can actually work out at least the maximum amount of carbon emissions and you can work out the minimum. Um, so I think the first task is to get a handle on the data. How big is this problem? It's an interesting idea that you actually just mentioned of uh, being able to identify a coin coming from a miner that is certified renewable as like a green BTC. Would that be worth more than BTC? I mean, there's a new market. Yeah, there's a new market. Someone write that down. We're selling this tomorrow. <laughs> but the, the thing that I think is like, because obviously coming from chain analysis, I think a lot about fungibility, right? Is one Bitcoin the same as another Bitcoin? And like, it really is. So unless it's a green Bitcoin. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like there, there was for a time apparently a premium on freshly mined Bitcoin, yeah. um, but actually from a like compliance perspective, it doesn't really make much difference. Um, and so you'd never be able to say or, or, or certify that this Bitcoin is a green Bitcoin, or and then you'd never be able to distinguish it from another one. Oh, way to burst my bubble. Thanks. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a fascinating conversation, uh, Philip. Thank you very much for coming in. Um, we have a bunch of questions that we just ask everyone, if you don't mind, run through them quickly. Cool. Um, where do you see the industry, and let's go with the on-chain analytics industry, in one year and in 10 years? So in one year's time, I think that people are only just realizing just how much information there is on-chain to help people make investment decisions. And so I think in a year's time, that knowledge will be much more widespread and people will start going you know, more deeply into the data than just how much Bitcoin is flowing into exchanges. In 10 years' time, like I've talked a little bit about this, about there's like a paradigm shift in how we you know, think about data as digital asset scale. You, there's just things you can't do in the real economy or the fiat economy that you could do if it was all you know, a digital asset-based economy. And so I, th you know, my hope, that's kind of why I'm in this industry, is that actually in the future you've kind of got real-time data on how all assets are being used. And then you can do like much more interesting like economic policy, for example. Imagine being able to understand the impact of COVID in real time, you know, on the economy because everything was digitized. We could be there in 10 years. Who knows? It's optimistic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Um, if you could change one thing about crypto, what would it be? I'd make it low carbon. Make it zero carbon. That's zero carbon crypto. Yep. Good. Is there one piece of technology in your life you couldn't live without? I mean... If I've got to say Bitcoin, but it's probably the internet. Okay. Yeah. What does your weekend look like when you're not uh, chief economist at Chainalysis? What are you doing to kick back? I mean, when we're not locked down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. In two months when this lockdown lifts, what are you oh, doing? Well, then I'm going to a restaurant. Yeah. Um, for sure. Okay. Um, are there any movies that you can watch over and over again and never get tired of? Uh, Inception. That's probably one of them, actually. Do you have any catchphrases that you live by or mottos? I find myself saying, does that make sense too much? Which I should probably stop. Okay. Um, who should we all follow on Twitter? Me. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> Shameless self-plugs are welcomed here. What's, uh, what's the handle? Uh, so it's philip underscore gradwell. Cool. And who's, who's your favorite person that you follow? 
favorite person that I follow? I actually quite like, there's a little community of blockchain analytics sort of people on Twitter. Like it's a pretty niche community. Um, but a lot I of charts. A lot of charts. Uh, a lot of being like, oh, what, what's this address from? Uh, yeah. Okay. It's a very geeky community. Do we, do we get lit into it or do you have to be? Oh, I mean, you can just follow, but. Okay. Um, what was the last thing that surprised you? So at least in kind of the crypto data world, uh, it was actually the charts that I showed earlier. You know, we made them pretty recently. Just understanding how much the cost basis of you know the large investors has changed in the last three months. I was like, wow, okay, this market really has changed. Did you think it, it wouldn't be that big a jump? Or Yeah, I didn't think it would be that big a jump. Does that shape how you think about what the next jump might be? Uh, yeah, I mean, like I talked about, I think it puts a floor in at least what it means about you know the next level. Like I think... We just, people really need to realize that there's been this kind of really structural shift where actually a lot of retail investors have, you know, handed the bag to corporates and institutions. So I guess the question is like, who do they hand it to next? Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, we didn't talk about this data point, but we can look at like the amount of capital gain that's being made on Bitcoin that's gone through exchanges. About 70% of it was made like through the entire history of Bitcoin. 70% of it was made in the last three months. Like there was a big cash out event very recently. Um, so yeah, we, we're basically dealing with a very different set of people holding Bitcoin now than we had before. Who should be the next guest we have on our show? Who do you want to hear from? Who do I want to hear from? Um, this is where I need to remember all the past guests you've had on the show. Um, There's only been 13 episodes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Shortlist. Um, <laughs> who's in that shortlist? So... Maybe actually, if you really want to dive into the like energy question, um, there's the team at Cambridge who have done a lot of work to actually understand the electricity consumption of different assets. So they might be good people to come in and talk about those data points. Is that because I know Cambridge has the it was like the Judge School for Alternative yeah. Finance? Is that That's the same one. unit? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, we've been talking to them, so hopefully they will come on. Um, if you somehow managed to meet Satoshi and you got to ask him one question. Not about his private keys. <laughs> what would you ask him? How have you managed to keep silent this long? I think we're all wondering that. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's uh, all the time we have. Thank you very much for coming in. I've, I've enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. To our listeners, if you haven't already seen Philip's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page or you can find it on our Twitter at CopperHQ or find it on the website, copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which goes out every Monday morning and includes links to all the week's top stories, as well as any updates from the wider team here at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure to give us a good review in whichever streaming platform you're using. And of course, subscribe. If you want to get in touch, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK, or you can email me directly, tyler.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, or if you know someone who should be, give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. The show is only made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry of Ben Silvertown and Tally Spear, with support from Maylee Malfer and Eva Leela. New episodes come out fortnightly, and in the meantime, stay safe.